Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The boy was tired, dirty, and hungry. He climbed up the side of the house, using the window ledge to boost himself up to the roof. He'd been to this house before. His bare feet barely left a mark on the metal roof. His tracks snaked along the roof line, then disappeared near the window he knew had been left unlocked. He quietly slipped inside. The house was currently unoccupied, but he was quiet nonetheless. He crouched, listening to the silence just to make sure. When he was reassured that he was alone, he made his way downstairs to the freezer. Inside was just what he needed. Frozen pizza and ice cream. The thought of food made him smile. He started the oven, placing the pizza inside, then showered while it cooked. Then he started a load of laundry. He ate his pizza while watching TV, then made sure to clean up afterwards. Feeling warm, clean, and with a full belly, he decided he'd sleep here tonight. It was a nice break from sleeping in the cold outdoors. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Today we're going to start in Washington in the United States, but this crime spree will end on Eleuthera Island in the Bahamas. Let's take off. Colton Harris Moore was born at the Saget Valley Hospital on March 22, 1991. His mom was Pamela Kohler and his dad, Gordon Moore. His dad reportedly struggled with drug and alcohol abuse and abandoned the family when Colton was just a toddler, leaving Pam with sole custody. She raised her son on Kamano Island, where they struggled financially, living out a meager existence in a ramshackle single-wide trailer. Pam struggled with alcoholism, which resulted in an unstable and sometimes abusive environment for Colton. He was a typical child in many ways. He collected James Bond movies, watching his favorite ones over and over, and he loved animals. Once he took care of a blind duck that happened to wander onto the property. But most of his time, he explored an obsession he had since he was a toddler. Airplanes. A love of airplanes isn't unusual among boys, but most move on to video games or sports or girls. Colton fixated on aviation. He filled the pages of sketch pads with meticulously drawn aircraft. In the margins, he'd leave detailed technical specs that would have been impressive to even a flight engineer. When a plane passed overhead, he could look up and tell you what company made it, the type of engine it had, and how many passengers it held. This wasn't typical of kids his age. Neither was the fact that, by the age of seven, Colt was running away from home on a regular basis. He would sometimes spend days at a time camping out in nearby forests. Kamano Island is one of more than 50 islands in Puget Sound. It's the fifth largest, and it's connected to the mainland by a bridge. It houses 15,000 residents, and they enjoy a laid-back rural atmosphere and a chance to enjoy life at a slower pace. The atmosphere, the uncrowded beaches, and meandering trails through gorgeous forests draws thousands of tourists every summer. The beauty of the island is enviable, and over the last 30 years, many of the island's rustic fishing and crabbing camps have been bought up and torn down, only to be replaced with luxury waterfront homes. 
The further south you go on the island, the more the homes spread apart, and the more wooded and private the land becomes. This is where Colton would grow up. His home sat on a beautiful piece of property, completely surrounded by the green of cedar trees. The yards with junk cars, broken lawn furniture, and nearly collapsing sheds weren't out of the ordinary for the rural area near his home. His trailer, a home that could be comforting to return to after a long day, was anything but for Colton. According to court documents, including those from Child Protective Services, his mother had been heavily affected by alcohol abuse throughout his formative years. His father was out of the picture by the time Colton was four. There were reports of his father coming back from one family barbecue in which Colton ended up calling 911 on his dad, who was then chased through the woods and arrested on outstanding warrants. Colt's view of police as heroes began to change as he grew older. His mom, Pam, said it started on his eighth birthday when she'd bought him an expensive bike. He went out to ride it, and the next thing she knew, a local officer pulled into the driveway with Colt inside the car. The deputy got out and opened the trunk and asked, Is this Colt's bike? His mom got angry, because she felt the officer was saying there was no way she could have bought it for him. The officer had believed Colton stole the bike. Perhaps that was the day that a seed was planted in Colton's mind. Slowly that seed grew into the idea that he would just take what he wanted or needed. Maybe, since the police already thought he was a thief, he would just become one, and he did so with flair. Not long after, his dog would be hit by the wife of a local police officer, which would add to his feelings of resentment towards law enforcement. Colt's mother would remarry, giving Colton a stepfather named Bill. He was a Vietnam vet that Pam said Colt was very close to. They did everything together, including camping and being out in nature. Bill taught Cole how to survive in the woods. Then, one day when Cole was ten, his stepdad had gone off to move some relatives to Florida. Pam was home, and the phone rang. She got the news that Bill had died, likely from a drug overdose. In a rage fueled by despair, Pam smashed every piece of glass in the house. She lost control of her emotions and hit the bottle hard after that, sometimes drinking in two-week binges, during which time she failed to stock the house with enough food. Colton began stealing food from his classmates at school, and later from neighbors' homes. Around this time, Colt became depressed and couldn't fall asleep until three in the morning. When he woke the next day, he'd feel groggy and irritable. He would confide to a social worker that he wasn't happy and wanted to stay in bed all day. He felt trapped in his own home, at the mercy of his mother's addiction. A court psychologist diagnosed Colton with ADHD, depression, and intermittent explosive behavior. He was placed on four medications, but his mom felt he was depressed and took him off all of them. According to the court documents around that time, Colton said he wanted his mom to stop drinking and smoking. He wanted her to get a job and have food in the house. He craved stability, a cell phone, some nice shoes and food. He tried to project normality by keeping his hair short and his clothes clean. But even with his best efforts, he had trouble relating to other kids at school. At home, his relationship with his mom was growing worse. She described him as the Tasmanian devil and claimed he was having constant meltdowns. Colton grew moodier, and naturally bigger. Once, when he was twelve, his mom pressed assault charges against him. During one battle, Colt would remember his mom screaming, I wish you would die. 
All this time, his mom denied she had a drinking problem. Mental health experts and social workers recommended she seek treatment for her alcoholism, but she refused. Colt tried to encourage her, too. He presented her with an AA handbook, but she burned it. He resolved he would never take drugs or drink, and it would become a point of pride with him. It was a way to set himself apart from the adults who had failed him. Stealing, on the other hand, was not only acceptable, but it was necessary. According to police, Colt's first attempts at theft were in 2001, when he was 10 years old and right after his stepdad died. This was according to Detective Ed Wallace, who would continue to chase Colt almost constantly as he got older. Colt began with childlike break-ins, even breaking into his own school, Stanley Middle School, which was located on the mainland, just across the bridge from Kamano Island. By December 2003, eight incident reports at the school for theft and vandalism appeared, among other infractions, resulting in multiple suspensions. When the principal asked why, Colt said he couldn't stop stealing and didn't know why. In sixth grade, his peers at school began calling him Klepto Colt. They said Colt was always getting in trouble, but he was generally a nice kid and seemed really smart. He just didn't know how to put that effort into schoolwork. It was around this time that Colt would meet his future accomplice. The young man was two years older than Colt, and his name, well, it's just perfect for painting the image of a rebel. His name was Harley Davidson Ironwing. Harley had been getting in trouble his whole life. He started drinking at the age of four, smoking at six, and stealing at seven. His biological mother couldn't take care of him, so he was sent to live with a foster mother at age four. Harley was named Harley from birth, but his foster mother gave him her last name of Ironwing and changed his middle name to Davidson. I read an article that said Colton's namesake was Colt 45 Beer. Not nearly as sexy as Harley's, but entertaining nonetheless. They met in middle school, where Colton was being bullied. Harley was a tough guy a year or two older, and he protected Colton. Then, according to Harley, he and Colton started doing burglaries together. Harley said he functioned as sort of a consultant. Colton would call him to help on a job, and Harley would charge a fee. They'd break into houses together and split what they found. Colt and Harley would make nuisances of themselves for years. By the age of 15, Colt had been to juvenile detention more times than most kids his age had eaten a Happy Meal. When he wasn't in juvenile detention, he was serving community service and had the eyes of the neighbors on him. Many people saw Colt as a blight on their community, but not everyone did. A local woman who spent years as a crisis worker and counseled at-risk youth said she thought Colt was a good boy and he hadn't intended for this to happen. When Colt was 14, he was sentenced to serve a week of community service at the park where she worked. She said Colt showed up without food or anything to drink, but he had to work a full day outdoors. She took the time to feed him and give him water, and he was very grateful to her. He worked hard, and during their varied conversations, she mentioned that the park had a very small budget for new plants. Two weeks after he finished his community service, he rode his bikes ten miles to the park to see her. He handed her three small bags full of seeds. He had gone out and hand-harvested seeds from local flowers that he thought would grow well in the park. He started to walk away, but then turned and said, Thank you for being so nice to me. 
as nice as he could be. He kept stealing, and the items he stole were getting more and more expensive, and the people who suspected him were demanding justice. In July of 2006, a warrant would be issued for his arrest after he failed to attend a mandatory court date. When he learned he was wanted by the police, he decided to run and hide. He began setting up campsites deep in the Kamano Island woods and continued to practice burglarizing homes for food and supplies. Roughly 70% of Kamano Island was wooded, with primarily thick stands of cedar and maple. Waist-high ferns carpet the forest floor. If you were to look into the woods, you wouldn't be able to see past the first line of trees. If you were to hike into the woods, you wouldn't be able to see someone until you were right up on them. The police would literally have to stumble onto Colton if he was keeping a low-profile camp. Some people might think this sounds glamorous, hiding from police and living out in nature, but living off the land is harder than it sounds. It's stinkier, dirtier, and a much harder life than most would expect it to be, especially in winter. Colt made his way through many of Kamano's parks and preserves, and many of those back right up against residents' houses. That's where he came up with the idea that would become his M.O. for the next couple of years. Snowbirds, or people who head somewhere warm for the winter, owned homes on the island, ones they only lived in during the summer. This meant that as much as six months of the year, Colton could break into hundreds of homes that were empty most of the time. When he broke in, he could sleep there, shower, steal their food, and stay warm during the cold winter months. In addition to the cans of tuna people left behind, they left all kinds of property. He and Harley would break into homes and steal computers, cash, jewelry, credit cards. He began to teach himself how to steal identities and commit identity fraud. He would order credit cards in the homeowner's names, and then he would use it to purchase food and high-tech survival gear, such as night vision goggles that helped him stay ahead of the police. He would even break into a fire department to steal their infrared camera. That way, he'd be able to look into a house to determine whether someone was living in it or not. There wasn't much evidence that Colton pawned the loot, he just liked to collect it. He became selective about what he bought with those stolen credit cards. With an overnight delivery, he could buy things like bear mace, aviation magazines, a police scanner, and evidence-erasing software for computers. These deliveries would be made to empty homes. This raised his level of risk because, instead of jumping from home to home, he had to return to the scene of his crimes to collect his packages once they'd been delivered. As Colton's boldness grew and the break-ins were continuing, police were under increased pressure to find him. They also realized there may be some copycats breaking in and entering homes on the island, inspired and possibly emboldened by Colton's success. Police tried to track him, but he always seemed to vanish. They would occasionally find areas where Colton had been hiding. In these areas, ferns would be pressed down into the earth. Sometimes there would be a tent there, or sometimes just a sleeping bag. Once they came up on one of his camps, they must have just missed him because they found Colton's dog Melanie there, along with a backpack. They confiscated the dog and took it to a local pound. Colton's mom called the pound to pick the dog up, but they told her they couldn't give it to her because the dog was evidence. Undoubtedly, this was a ruse used by police to get Colton to turn himself in. It didn't work. Instead, one night Colton broke into the pound and stole his dog back. He was back to hiding in the woods in no time. 
Harley would tell a story about how he and Colton would joyride in a 2007 Mercedes they found parked in one of the vacation homes. They took it out for a drive several times. Each time, they'd return it, parking it in exactly the same spot. They'd wash the car down and make sure it was full of gas, so the owners would never notice they'd used it. As Colt became bolder, he didn't just steal from homes anymore. He began to steal from restaurants and storefronts. Police were getting frustrated because they knew that one person was doing all of these break-ins, and they knew it was Colton, but they just couldn't catch him. One night, going off a tip, police hid outside a house they believed the two boys were staying in. Colton was seen entering the house as usual, but Harley felt like something was off. He stayed outside for 15 minutes, smoking and looking around before entering the home as well. The boys helped themselves to something to drink and were standing in the kitchen when police entered the house with guns drawn. Colt dropped his glass and ran. Harley saw the glass drop, saying it seemed like it was falling in slow motion. He ran the other way, and both boys escaped that night. Colton was running while giving police the middle finger. Colton reminds me a little bit of a victim from another episode I covered. Murder for Lobster. His name was Philip Boudreaux, and his community had a love-hate relationship with him, too. Some of the locals began calling Colton a cockroach because he kept getting away. One night, he broke into an Ace Hardware store. He broke into their safe and stole $3,000. Another store would be broken into, and he would take beef jerky, potato chips, and cases of water, along with whatever cash he could find. In February of 2007... Seven months after he went on the run, Island County officers finally caught him when he screwed up and turned on a light in a supposedly vacant home. He surrendered after a short standoff and pled guilty to three out of 23 counts of burglary, most of which were small residential burglaries. His plea deal led to a three-year sentence at Greenhill, a high-security juvenile detention facility. He was a model student slash inmate at the Greenhill School. He was transferred to the Griffin Home Residential Treatment Center a year later. Colt was now 16. The Griffin Home was a minimum security halfway house used to transition troubled youth back into society. Many speculated that Colt's exemplary behavior was merely a ruse in order to relocate himself to a place with better escape opportunities. Two months after his move to the halfway house, he would slip through an unlocked window and escape. He proceeded to steal a car and returned to Kamano Island. Once there, he resumed his habit of breaking and entering in order to steal food and supplies. This time, local authorities were better prepared and maintained an aggressive campaign for his capture. The local media took notice, and news stories soon began appearing about the mysterious teenage outlaw. In July of 2008, Police on Kamano Island gave chase to a black Mercedes that had been seen driving erratically. As police closed in, the driver of the Mercedes suddenly jumped out and ran off into the woods. Police searched the vehicle and found stolen credit cards, cell phones, and a digital camera that the driver had used to take some selfies. Colton was quickly identified as the person in the photos. In one picture, he was laying on his back in the middle of a forest and looking straight up at the camera. This image would eventually become widespread online and would result in a growing fan base. At 17, Colton Harris Moore would earn a catchy nickname due to his habit of committing crimes while barefoot and sometimes leaving footprints behind. 
he had officially become the Barefoot Bandit. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This most recent escape spurred police to chase after him with more determination than ever. Colt decided he needed to leave Kamano Island as soon as possible. He stole a boat and decided to spend some time on nearby Orcas Island. It wasn't long before Orcas Island police would receive increasing numbers of burglary reports. Colton continued to steal boats and island hop through Puget Sound. Once he got where he wanted to be, he'd set the boats adrift. On Orcas Island, reports of theft would reach a critical level in October of 2008. In response, the Chamber of Commerce would hold a special meeting to address the sudden plague of sophisticated break-ins. Police in the area ramped up their efforts to catch the person responsible, the person who they now strongly suspected as being Colton. Colt felt the heat and decided that now was the time to do something he'd been wanting to do for a very long time. He'd been casing the small airport on Orcas Island for at least a week. He hid behind the tree line and behind a flimsy deer fence. He watched the takeoffs and landings and waited patiently until he saw a late-model Cessna airplane fly in. Sometime after sundown, he pried his way into the hangar. He spent the night checking out the plane, reading the GPS and autopilot manuals, and he dug around long enough to find the ignition key the owner had tucked away in a fishing tackle box. Just before sunrise, he used his six-foot-five, 200-pound frame to pull a one-ton plane out of the hangar and onto the runway. He had watched plenty of YouTube videos and played flight simulation programs on his computer, but he'd never actually flown a plane. That didn't matter to the plane-obsessed boy. On that pre-dawn morning, his fingers found all the gauges and controls quickly. The private plane turned over easily, and none of the neighbors took notice of the sound of the plane as he revved it up at first light and taxied out towards the still-sleeping town of East Sound. He spun the nose of the plane around and headed straight down the runway. If he made a mistake, his path would end abruptly in the cold gray water of the sound. He gave the engine full throttle, and the plane lurched forward. When it hit 60 miles an hour, the plane lifted, and in that moment, I imagine Colton had the biggest smile on his face. He turned toward the rising sun and then south. In ten minutes, Kamano Island came into view. The landing strip there wasn't an option because he knew he'd be recognized. His face was on wanted posters plastered in every storefront and hotel. He continued southeast, leaving Puget Sound for the mainland. He managed to avoid all the areas with heavy air traffic and steered toward the Cascade Mountains. Flying over the mountains creates a lot of weather. Mountainous peaks create a lot of change in the wind, and this means turbulence. A flight instructor for the area said Colt's ride would have been extremely uncomfortable. It would have been the equivalent of spinning inside a commercial clothes dryer. The instructor found it almost unbelievable that Colton had made it past the mountains alive. He couldn't put the plane down in a small airport without drawing the attention of authorities, so his only choice was an open-level field. 
He found one just on the east side of the Cascades in the Yakima Indian Reservation. He circled around, lined up for an approach, and reduced speed. He was attempting to land in a field at more than 80 miles an hour. This was a great feat that had gotten pilots with far more experience killed. Tribal police would find the Cessna later that day with its landing gear, propeller, and undercarriage mangled. When authorities examined the cockpit, they found it splattered in vomit, but there were no other traces of the pilot. Following his first plane heist, Colton stole a series of cars and stayed on the move, traveling between places such as Reno, Sacramento, and eastern Washington. While on the run, he had ten charges filed against him, including identity theft and illegal flight to avoid prosecution. He'd make his way home to Kamano Island in May of 2009, where he continued with his cat-and-mouse games with the local sheriff's department. He even broke into a patrol car that was parked in front of a deputy's house and stole police equipment, including a cell phone, a police-issued rifle, and a supply of ammunition. In spite of his crash landing, Colton's love of flying hadn't diminished. He would steal a second plane from an airport in a town called Friday Harbor. He flew ten miles back to the airport on Orcas Island, where he'd stolen his first plane. If it wasn't enough that he'd only flown twice, what's more amazing is that he did his second flight at night. This meant he had to use the readings on the instrument panel alone. Colt came close to nailing his night flight on the first try. He broke one of the $300 runway lights when he accidentally hit it, but the plane was still flyable after landing. From there, he made his way to a nearby marina, where he stole a small yacht, and navigated 15 miles north to the town of Point Roberts, which sat right on the Canadian border. Based on subsequent burglaries there, the Canadian police believed Colton crossed into Canada, where he broke into two airplane hangars. Unable to find a plane he liked, he crossed back into the United States on foot, then stole a car, and drove it to another small airport in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. This time he took a plane he was familiar with, a Cessna 182 belonging to a local cattle rancher. The rancher had used it to fly to auctions. Colton broke into the passenger door with a crowbar and spent some time in the plane reading materials before pulling it out the door at first light. He couldn't find the keys for the Cessna, but according to what I read, most single-engine planes aren't very hard to steal. He allegedly started it up by jamming a screwdriver into the keyhole and twisting. An airport worker said the engine was running at full speed, but even so, Colton had trouble getting the plane off the ground. The Cessna was equipped with a variable propeller, which is kind of like a gear shift. He was trying to take off in what was essentially low gear, and barely cleared the top of the trees at the end of the runway. But he was off. Once again, he crossed toward the Cascades, but his fuel reserve ran low. He was forced to drop below a thick cloud cover, to search for a place to land, and that's when he found himself in serious weather. Winds were gusting in excess of 30 miles an hour and tossed the plane around like a toy. He lost control of the aircraft for a short time. When he was finally able to level off, he spotted a clearing on the ground, but what he didn't know was that the clearing was full of stumps. It had been a timber forest. When he made the approach, he was moving at 110 knots, which is about 40 miles an hour faster than it is safe to land. When he hit the ground, the plane began to pinball from stump to stump. The stumps ripped away the wheels and buckled the undercarriage. 
After hitting the ground, the plane only slid 90 feet. Colt went from almost 130 miles an hour to standing still in less than three seconds. The cockroach, a.k.a. the barefoot bandit, survived once again. This was because of the airbags installed in the plane. He was so scared that the plane would explode that he had kicked the passenger side door open and ran from the crash while still wearing the headphones that were attached to the cockpit. When he felt secure that the plane wasn't going to blow up, he returned and diligently rubbed a quart of oil over the interior to eliminate his fingerprints. This crash made Colton famous. The media came running. When the masses heard his story, they began designing T-shirts, shirts with his face on them that said, Fly, Colton, fly, and Mama tried. People reached out to him, telling him that they'd be willing to hide him from police and Girls reached out, wanting to date him. He became a folk hero in some people's eyes. Colton called his mom and read some of the Facebook messages he'd been left. They laughed about some of the newspaper stories that portrayed him as a barefoot renegade living in the woods and stealing food for survival. He was baffled by a celebrity. His mom was under siege by reporters from all over the world, but the most frequent visitors to her house were police officers. One day, Colton's dog, Melanie, flushed an officer out from behind the trees in their house. After he showed himself, an entire SWAT team emerged from the forest behind him. They'd been searching for Colton. Hollywood even came calling. They offered to buy the rights to Colton's story whenever he turned himself in or got caught. Colton told his mom he wasn't interested. He didn't need the money, and if he had it, he'd give it all to animal shelters. One animal shelter in particular would receive a note at $100. The note said, I have a little extra cash. Please use this money to take care of the animals. It was signed Colton Harris Moore. The shelter called the authorities who confiscated the money. Colt's mom then called the shelter and replaced that confiscated money with $100 of her own. Now that Colton was suspected of stealing an airplane, he would be facing federal charges but they wouldn't come for nearly a year after his first flight. A few months had gone by, and no one heard from Colton. His mom was worried and asked for a sign to prove he was still alive. The next day, someone painted a bare footprint on a local bridge. She took this as a sign that Colton was safe. When she spoke with him, she tried to talk him into turning himself in, using the movie money to hire a good lawyer, and whatever he didn't use, he could still give to animal shelters. After doing his prison time, he could still get a pilot's license. His whole life was ahead of him. She thought that during those quiet months, he was preparing to turn himself in, but she was mistaken. Colt was afraid he wouldn't get a fair trial and was worried he'd be shot on sight. On the evening of February 10th, 2010, just a week after his mom speculated he might be ready to surrender. Colt stole his third plane. He flew back to the scene of his first flight, Orcas Island Airport. The town of East Sound wasn't happy to have Colton back. He allegedly burglarized the homegrown market in Delhi, where he took not only $1,200 in cash and a cheesecake, but he also stole some chalk. He used it to send a message he drew 39 giant footprints on the red concrete floor. He left a trail that led right to the store's entrance, 
where he wrote Sia. He knew this would be entertaining to the 20,000 fans he now had on Facebook. At this point, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security also became involved in the hunt. Special agents were deployed to Orcas Island, and Coast Guard cutters patrolled the offshore waters. A Black Hawk helicopter was flown in to help with manhunt efforts. Colt escaped the island and made it to nearby San Juan Island, where he then piloted a stolen boat back to his home on Kamano Island. Soon after, the FBI placed a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the 19-year-old fugitive. In June of 2010, fearing for his life and facing heavy police presence in Washington, Colton made his way across the country in a series of stolen vehicles. He'd drive until he ran out of gas before stealing another vehicle. When reports of break-ins at small airports began to come in, the world suspected Colton was responsible. On the 4th of July, 2010, a $650,000 Cessna was reported stolen from an airport in Bloomington, Indiana. Colton allegedly hotwired it, and using a pocket GPS, flew the plane from Indiana all the way to the northernmost islands in the Bahamas, the Abacos. He was forced to crash land the plane near Great Abaco Island. He survived once again after crashing in a marshy area. Then he walked his way to a nearby fishing village where he survived for several days by stealing food from nearby stores and restaurants. His single moment of socializing, say authorities, was when he was sighted buying a drink for a girl in a bohemian bar. He was soon spotted by surveillance cameras breaking into a restaurant in the island's main town of Marsh Harbor. The bohemian police launched a manhunt on the island. Colt carried a laptop, a GPS, and a 9mm handgun, but was still barefoot. He stole a 44-foot powerboat and zoomed 40 miles across the ocean to the island of Eleuthera. Once there, he switched to a smaller 15-foot skiff and motored into nearby Harbor Island. He was spotted docking at the Ramora Bay Resort around midnight on a Saturday by a security guard. He ran past the guard on the dock, yelling, They're after me! They're after me! They're going to kill me! The guard recognized Colton and called the police. He had seen Colton hide in some bushes and thought he knew just where he was. The police began their search. Nearly two hours later, Cole doubled back to the marina, swimming to the boat he had stolen earlier, only to find that the guard had cut the wires on the skiff, preventing him from escaping. This didn't slow down Colt for long. He jump-started an even larger and more powerful boat. By then it was 2 a.m. and low tide. He began to motor out in the dark with his running lights off. It was pretty suspicious, and when people saw the boat moving, they had an idea it might be him. The only thing was, the police didn't have a boat on site, so they asked for volunteers and a couple of visiting boat owners stepped up to the challenge. Police loaded their boats and the chase began. Colton was unfamiliar with the hidden reefs, and it was low tide. He ran smack into a sandbar. The two police-occupied boats were closing in. Police shot one of his engines. When they tried to arrest the teenager, he put the barrel of his 9mm gun to his own head and said he couldn't go back to jail. Thankfully, police talked him out of shooting himself, and Colton, who'd been on the run for at least two years, seemed relieved to have been caught. He'd committed crimes in the U.S., Canada, and now the Bahamas. Given time, he would confess in a plea deal to 40 felonies. 
During his years-long crime spree, he earned a cool nickname, Global Publicity Surrounding His Fugitive Escapades, over 50,000 Facebook followers, and a six-and-a-half-year prison sentence. He told the court that he was genuinely remorseful for his crimes. He hoped that after he got out of prison, he would become an aeronautical engineer. Soon after being put in jail, he sold the rights of his life story to 20th Century Fox for $1.4 million. All of that money went towards restitution per the terms of his sentencing. In 2016, Colton's mother was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. He set up a GoFundMe soliciting funds to have his mother's body cryogenically frozen with the hope that her body could later be revived and cured of her cancer. His mother died on May 17, 2016, at which time he'd only raised $2,170. Since he hadn't met his goal, the money was refunded to donors. Later that same year in September, Colton was released from prison to probation. He took part-time work with the attorney who had represented him in court. A couple months later, he opened another GoFundMe, hoping to raise more than $125,000 for a flight school training. He was now 25 years old, free and ready to fly again, legally. However, he still owed his victims $129,000. As a result, he was ordered to halt fundraising efforts, and the $1,600 he had raised went to court-ordered restitution. In an interview in May of 2019, Colt reflected on his life, recalling how his lifelong interest in airplanes had resulted in his first memorable flight. He still feels like flying is an uncontrollable obsession, and he wonders if he'll ever feel like he's exactly where he's supposed to be ever again. Looking to his future, he took a pessimistic tone, thinking that it was going to be difficult to have a normal life. Since that interview, he completed his probation and has remained reclusive. He erased all traces of himself on any previously held social media pages. His current whereabouts are unknown. He's done his time. He's paid for his crimes. He'd made restitution to his victims. He is free to become who he wants to be, and I wish him luck. I read somewhere that he has dreams of returning to the Bahamas legally in the future. That's a place I'd like to go again, so if we happen to cross paths, I'll buy him a rum drink. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed researching it. I'd like to thank all of you who have taken the time to rate and review the podcast. Your kind reviews and sharing the podcast with friends is what keeps Twisted Travel and True Crime growing. An even bigger thank you to those of you who have chosen to sponsor the podcast. There is a link to do so in the show notes, and that's where you'll find links to social media too. There you can see photos and discuss the crime with me. As always, I'd like to wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Take care.